Join me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast to hear fascinating stories every week from the inspiring people behind the science. In this episode, we find out what gives Rob Adlard from Gravity Lab sleepless nights. Hello, Charlie and Rob. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, now, um, just to introduce you both, Charlie, you, you've got a background in aerospace. And yes, that's right. As well as in sales and in journalism, which doesn't necessarily seem like a natural match, but maybe it is. Um, and you've also unbelievably got a master's in physics, so you've been fairly busy um, throughout. And um, and Rob, before um, before you launched Gravity Lab, you you had a background in material science um, and did your postgrad in space engineering. Um, and were involved in a number of highly technical um, positions at several space companies and um, and even published a report which explored the market for suborbital launch in the UK and Europe. Um, and, that, and now you're both at Gravity Lab. Um, Rob, your CEO, and Charlie, you're the science and data lead. Um, and, and, and Rob, you obviously hit the nail on, on the head with that report that you wrote. Um, and there is indeed a suborbital launch market. Um, but I, I mean, I, I do, one thing I want to touch on first is that I, I think we we tend to think of anything as space space related as being relevant only to space exploration. Um, but but that's not the case. That you found the byproducts of space exploration are actually relevant in in multiple different areas of research. Do you, can you talk us through that realization and um, and how you're making the most of that? Well, Shana, I'll say a little bit about from sort of an engineering and kind of company perspective, and I'll let Charlie say much more interesting things about the the sciencey side. So, from from a company perspective, um, I guess my background had been um, related to vehicles, and it's part of the whole thing of bringing space down to earth. I was really excited by the idea that the UK was going to establish a, a launch market domestically in the UK. The idea that we could launch things to space from the UK was really, really exciting. So I got involved in that um, idea and supporting projects around that idea uh, quite a while ago. Uh, and then I've spent a lot of time since we established Gravity Lab uh, telling people that we're not a rocket company. Uh, so being a pain to say, you know, we're not a rocket company like Uber's not a taxi company. So, you know, uh, the founders of Uber weren't going around asking people to invest in a taxi firm. They are, of course, using space data to transform the way that transportation services are delivered. And so we're sort of using various bits of hardware and vehicles to transform the way that sort of research and testing services are, are delivered through our vehicles. Um, so that's sort of one thing. And that was kind of what the report explored a bit. Um, but then beyond that, uh, I think that we, we would say that we are sort of providing some kind of upstream services for an enormous potential downstream world uh, where these environments can just be used to advance scientific um, developments. So yeah, absolutely, building on what Rob says, um, let's first define what a microgravity environment might look like, um, because you know a lot of people will either just define that as being in space, or other people will recognize uh, how that affects fundamental processes. So microgravity uh, in general, if you're going beyond something called the Kármán line on Earth, where te technically space might begin, um, there is a lot of debate around that, like what separates Earth atmosphere and in space. But, but generally in that environment, we have uh, no buoyancy or a greatly reduced buoyancy, um, similarly reduced sedimentation, almost no convection, 
um, we have uh, reduced hydrostatic pressure. We have a, a dominant surface tension effect. And we also have the realization of things like containerless fluids. So you can appreciate that in certain fundamental processes, mass transport is, is completely changed. Um, and that can really help in certain research areas. Well, I actually struggle to think of many research areas that that doesn't you know, sort of greatly influence um, things. So we tend to see gravity a little bit as noise or contaminant on Earth that actually masks or inhibits our understanding of these processes. And so by giving scientists access to these environments, not only are we allowing and advancing progress for space exploration, but we're also informing sort of core areas of research on Earth. And those can be anything from material sciences to cancer research. Wow, it's just so extraordinary. I mean, to think that a zero a zero gravity environment could help with cancer research. I mean, can you can you delve into that a little bit more? And Absolutely. What what how how that actually affects the research on Earth? So we're sitting here now, and every cell in our body knows what's happening. It knows that gravity is here, so they respond accordingly. But if you take a simple cell like a T cell in cancer research, for example, take that out of gravity and see how it responds. For certain cells, and I'm not saying all, it does vary from cell to cell, they can be a bit discombobulated. Biochemical events can change. You know, you remove gravity from an uh, equation, um, remove the gravity receptor, sort of disorientate them, then it can affect things like cellular adhesion or proliferation. So that's why a lot of research on the ISS, for example, there's a lot of really big cancer research going into things from like brain cancer to gut um, and stomach cancer because how um, gravity can affect microbiome reactions as well. So, I mean, sorry if this is a ignorant sounding question, but how, why is that relevant? Because all of our cells are on Earth with gravity. So why is it important to know how that they how they would respond without gravity unless we were going to go space? So for one for one example, it would be to develop medications that can perhaps achieve a similar effect. So help um, reduce the adhesion of a cancer cell to to a human or like normal body cell, for example. If we can help achieve similar effects, then that will actually help increase the the sort of ability to to treat effectively on Earth. Okay, right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, well, fingers crossed that can happen then. And then there is also so so a lot of the work that we do is about supporting other other companies, other people's sort of research. So we're not really, you know, obviously we're not doing the research. We're providing the environments and the platforms to do that. Yeah. So there, you know, there there are so many fantastic startups um, around the world, particularly in the UK, uh, looking at uh, these fantastic scientific challenges, the medical challenges. Um, so there might be a company, there is a company, um, thinking of Dr. Katie King and her, her startup who are looking at cancer treatments. And so the microgravity environment is required in order to be able to ultimately, hopefully produce a treatment, uh, a different way of delivering, uh, cancer drugs. And so there's a long sort of pathway to sort of development and testing in order to be able to reach that point. And so our services are about, uh, not just providing the environment, which might then ultimately, um, Live the drug, but it's about sort of developing the uh, the processes uh, and doing fundamental research, which is then going to lead to those really big breakthroughs. And then it might be somebody else's services, or it might be a, an orbital service, which then ultimately produces the drug. But all the work of the research up until that point is sort of where we're coming, we come in, and so we're kind of supporting all these fantastic journeys along the way of all these all these 
other scientists and wonderful, you know, wonderful researchers who are doing these great things. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, yeah, Rob, you, you raise a really good point. So Katie King of BioOrbit, um, you know, one one thing that we're looking at um, with, with through that is things like protein crystallization. So with protein crystallization on Earth, um, some proteins are very difficult to crystallize and then assess via like X-ray um, crystallography methods to establish their structures. However, in microgravity, because you've got the lack of sedimentation and buoyancy, um, actually you're allowing proteins to grow and um, crystals to grow larger and more uniformly in all directions. So that allows um, particularly tricky proteins like membrane proteins to actually be grown off of earth and studied. And that helps inform um, particularly for genetic diseases such as muscular dystrophy, um, the actual treatments for that. So it, one example is the Japanese Space Agency. We actually have on Earth medical trials for Duchenne mus muscular dystrophy as a direct result of being able to grow the proteins that can help identify and you know inhibitors or triggering mechanisms for those diseases off Earth. Wow. I mean it's it's slightly mind-blowing hearing about it all, I have to admit. Um and it and that your 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 creating the environment for new breakthroughs is one thing but really it, it seems to me that you've had a, this in itself is a breakthrough in 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 enabling this type of research um and you've had a, a couple of genuine breakthroughs you know you were the first developer um of uh, industry changing vehicles to achieve this you you know no no one else did it before you um and uh one example is your it's UAV. This is unmanned aviation vehicle. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, it's so funny. These these vehicles have all different kinds of names. Some people prefer to call them drones. Uh, and there's UAS, uh, unmanned aerial systems. But I think we all sort of you get, you get it if you say a few of the names together, then everyone gets what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So that that is something that, which is quite unique. I mean, I would say it's sort of we're sort of the first company to actually really focus on trying to provide these services as, as a comprehensive suite of services to enable all these industries so people have looked at different bits of it there have been suborbital rockets for quite a long time if you, if you want to talk about not that we're a rocket company but if you want to talk about the rockets then there have been <laughs> suborbital rockets around for a very long time you know they were the first types of rockets um and they were always seen as a development a step on the way to somewhere else but the that they're sort of you know purpose what they do has kind of come back around and almost in a circle to to meet you know the kind of current technology needs so what they do is they go into space for a period of time and they come back on a parabolic arc you know gravity eventually brings them back down so what goes up goes down it doesn't stay in orbit and the benefit of that is that you physically get whatever you put in the rocket back so you get the hardware or you know um, materials or whatever it is that you're testing physically back which you don't when you put it in orbit so that's that's sort of really, really useful. And, you know, and so rather than it being something that doesn't achieve orbit, it's actually deliberately in order to get the stuff back that you're that you're testing, that's really, really useful. So we're looking at sort of, you know, different, completely different treatment of those kinds of vehicles for different purposes. I think we're the only company that's really looked at this and thought that we would try to address this sort of, this kind of, you know, market, which has been disparate and it's, it's chunks of so many different bits of markets. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that's sort of difficult for people to understand is it's, it, it, it's new in that um, it doesn't really hang together as a whole market yet, but it's not new at all in that, you know, it, it's it's using sort of bits of technology that have been uh, used before in the past. And it's all the kinds of markets that we're familiar with, such as, uh, you know, pharma, uh, bio, material science, all those kinds of things. 
But the UAV system is really quite new. So I'll talk about that for a moment um, if I can. And that's, um, so, it's, so it's a patent pending system. Um, uh, and it's the first time, I think in a very, very long time, anybody come up with a new way to really sort of access microgravity environments. Uh, it's slightly uh, counterintuitive in a way in that it's two vehicles that are both sort of UAVs or drone vehicles. One lifts the other, uh, then it releases the second vehicle, which then powers itself down towards the ground. Um, so that sounds really simple, and it is sort of relatively simple in a way, but there's obviously a great deal of development in there and a great deal of, you know, there's sort of all kinds of really boring challenges like um, licensing challenges because people don't like the idea of a vehicle powering itself down <laughs> towards the ground. Um, and there's no legislation really to sort of particularly, you know, allow that. Nobody's really done it before. We're the only people who need to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there have been lots of challenges to solve. Um, the benefit of, of that is that it's a very, uh, um, it's a very flexible way um, to provide access to these environments. And that's sort of what we're all about. So it's the accessibility. So you could, in theory, access microgravity environments before, but they're either very expensive. So part of the accessibility is bringing the cost down. Um, but then it's about the sort of logistics of it. So, you know, do you have to travel a thousand miles to a very specialist facility? Do you have to access that? And the answer is yes. So you have to access it through an institutional program they have to be accepted upon so your research has to be the right kind of research that ticks various boxes to be able to do that so if you have a startup and you have a great idea and it doesn't you know it's your idea it doesn't align with the research goals of an institution then you're not going to be able to access those services at all so we're part of this kind of new space world we call it new space that just means providing commercial services where previously there have either been none or it's been dominated by governments and big big international organizations so this um, this system we call it Louis. Um, it's uh, it's it's the most flexible way to access microgravity. <clears throat> so it's a very short duration. So it's just a few seconds, but it's comparable with using a drop tower, which might provide sort of between two or four seconds. So it's it's a sort of slightly longer duration than a drop tower, but it's more consistent quality than a parabolic flight, which is another way of accessing microgravity from a terrestrial standpoint. And how how long? Uh, you know, you're saying these three or four seconds it sounds like such a tiny amount of time, but it's better than the other option. Well, it's it's better than it's much more accessible. So um, with our system, we can take it and we can deploy it in uh, at uh, any kind of local airfield initially. And then some of the testing that we're doing and approvals we've got from the CAA now is for us to just fly it on any kind of private land. So if there's a field that's an appropriate size, we can go and do it somewhere. So we can take it around the UK. We can take it up to Scotland to help researchers there we can so it's it's all about the accessibility but it's all about but it's also providing cons a consistent quality so it's the same quality for the duration of the drop um, which will be between sort of four and ten seconds depending on the configuration um, and the point of that is it's a stepping stone again then to accessing minutes of microgravity and it's an appropriate service at an early stage for somebody to just de-risk something that they're doing or to answer a question or to validate some modeling um, and as I say, it's the it's it's comparable in some ways with some of the services which exist, like a drop tower or a parabolic flight. But those things are much more difficult to access. And all you have to do just picture a really big passenger airline. That's what we're competing with with a very very small system which will fit in my hands. So you you know immediately intuitively you understand that it, it's a much more simple thing to be able to deliver.
but there's also other types of experiments that, that may not be sort of biomedical or biological that um, fit really nicely in, in seconds. Look at a simple combustion reaction, for example, or a quantum um, experiment that on Earth may actually be conducted within milliseconds. But actually, by then extending that to seconds, you're actually, you know, you're actually getting a lot more um, time to an opportunity to study something. Um, so it's really quite a unique environment for, for those types of, of reactions as well and experiments. And the other thing is that because it's all about sort of the control system of the vehicle, about how it accelerates. So it's accelerating, you know, at kind of 1G. So the stuff inside the vehicle experiences the inverse of that. Um, so we can we can accelerate it so that it's it's uh, simulating a lunar gravity profile or a Martian gravity profile. And those things are really, really important because mechanisms behaved completely differently. There's a famous instance of um, a NASA mission and um, a, a drill on Mars that didn't operate, didn't really work because um, the Martian gravity hadn't been taken into account. So there are all kinds of applications with in situ resource utilization for the moon and Mars, where these you know, you know, very sort of low technology readiness levels um, need to be sort of de-risked through this kind of activity. And one last example, again, say you've got something that you want to just be able to switch on once it reaches a planet or reaches space. You just need that second to verify that that switch on is going to actually happen. Hence, another use, good use for Louis. Yeah, Louis Louis does sound incredibly, incredibly useful. He's he's earning his keep. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got another, another well, and you say you're not a rocket company, but you have actually got a rocket delightfully named Isaac. Yes, yes, we do. Um, not and an old testament reference. <laughs> so um, yes, so with our, with our rocket technology, so we're developing, so we have the largest um, hybrid rocket engine test facility in the UK here, where we're based in Norfolk. Um, and we're developing sort of scalable technologies, which will, which will enable us to do whatever we want to do with future services as well. But the first port of call is a vehicle called Isaac, which will provide minutes of microgravity with our suborbital flight. Uh, and then that technology can scale uh, to, to provide bigger vehicles, longer durations, and then ultimately access uh, new markets, which we think are really interesting, such as VLEO, which just means very low Earth orbit. Uh, and that, that's... How, uh, how low is very low Earth orbit? It's really it's really low. So it's shockingly low. So um, anywhere between 120 kilometres and 300 kilometres. Oh, um, so yeah, a right. so vehicle, yeah. So suborbital vehicles uh, go higher than, higher than that, or can go higher than that. Um, but um, so that so in that orbital plane, the the spacecraft, we say spacecraft in spacey terms, what we mean is like that's the satellite or something, the bit that stays in space. The launch vehicle is the bit that goes into space and comes back and delivers the spacecraft. So the spacecraft, the satellite, whatever it is, uh, there needs to be under constant propulsion in order to stay there. But the reason why it's of, of interest to people is that it's extremely a, a very sustainable uh, way of using orbit. So um, once the spacecraft is not under propulsion, it will just deorbit because there's there's sufficient sort of there's some atmospheric uh, effects at that level, uh, although very slight. But so it will deorbit itself; it won't stay there. And so you, you are mitigating space debris without having to go and clean it up. Nothing will stay there. So it's very very clean, uh, and it means that you're getting a better fidelity of uh, readings from whatever instrumentation you have, uh, and it requires less power. So there are all kinds of sort of positive positives for using that that orbit so we, we plan to be addressing that in terms of being able to provide longer durations of microgravity so that could be months of microgravity for a passive system or years for an active system uh, and so there's some really exciting opportunities there for us too
You're here with me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. It does sound like it. Um, and just on that um, deorbiting, it, it just delivers itself back to us. It, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but in the right place, it's not going to. It entirely depends. So, um, there, so there are ways of doing it so that yes, it 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 will it will be in a particular an exact place or it will just be in a safe place or you know so at the moment when things return to earth things return to earth rockets and things return to earth they're generally there's um there's a particular spot in the pacific ocean yes um but that's not really ideal so it'd be, it'd be nicer for them to come back and be used or for them to to burn up and not produce you know not actually have any sort of debris so they're very the various different ways of doing it okay um and at the moment you're um well, recently at least, you've um, you've done a collaboration with with, uh, with a UK university. We can't say which one. Is that right? Um, I think we probably can. We can. Yeah. <laughs> it was the the University of Manchester. Yes, and that was on the <laughs> materials science based research. Do you want to talk a little bit about that collaboration? Well, I'll I'll talk about what I know about it before yes. um before Rob takes over because it, it slightly preceded me joining, but it was essentially um working with with high entropic materials and I think sort of working trying to work out how to use disorder to the advantage of a material like development process. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, um, but yes, Rob, carry on. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not going to talk in scientific terms about it, but the project was um. It, so it, it's relating to you know new semiconductors uh, i think in terms of kind of the um the materials aspect and you know and there's a great deal of interest in that for all kinds of reasons we would have to schedule another hour to talk about why um but probably lots of your listeners will will um, understand why immediately um and so so the university of manchester has this incredible material science department it's really quite large and there are lots of researchers doing incredible things there and obviously it's the home of graphene that's just one bit of it um, so there's lots of material science research uh, going on there. Um, they've done some incredible things in the lab and they wanted to be able to um, repeat that in microgravity. So the interesting bit for us, and this relates very much to our services, is that in order to do that, we have to create a new module for them, which will heat up this material in a short period of time, short enough period of time for it to experience microgravity, get hot enough and go through the transformation. <clears throat> so that doesn't exist. So that's sort of bespoke work that we have to do. Now that's work that we're, really happy and excited to do for any customer so if if they have something which is unique and just doesn't exist then we can work with them to realize that payload manifest it um but it's something that's sort of very much at the core of our sort of services think about thinking about you know so let's forget about rockets for a moment it's going to bring it more, more down to earth we want to create um various kind of lab modules uh, so you know we're gravity lab and we want to be able to have these lab modules which we can place in the right environment so if you need a microgravity environment or something that's, you know, that's taking advantage of these sort of absences of buoyancy and sedimentation, et cetera. So we can create the module for that. And so it might be a bioreactor. It might be to test material science. It might be to, um, what kinds of other, other things? Well, for example, like with a quantum experiment quantum. And, yeah. and sort of atomic interferometer is one sort of far out idea I'd have um, to utilize uh, ultra cold atoms. That's a very sort of um, simple way of describing that experiment. Um, but yes, or um, a bioreactor, for mm. example, to, to do a, a biomedical or, or biological experiment. 
so the thing is that so so when a customers want to you know want to want to advance their research they don't need to know about the rocket we don't have to look at the rocket or talk about the rocket but they're going to have a list of these modules they could they can look at and assess whether their research is going to fit in in one of them and if it doesn't that's fantastic so it's just they're just going to put it in there and that's and we're going to do do that for them um if not and it's really is worthwhile research then we can develop that module for them and then maybe that goes on to have a life of its own after that or maybe it's just for that research but that's the that's the service element that we're really seeking to provide it it certainly sounds like it's going to be really well used i hope it i hope it isn't at least anyway um and just um just to track back a little bit um i think just to put it into context or at just out of general interest i just wondered what motivated you initially towards space per se or space engineering in the first place was we was it a gravity thing was it a space it what 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 was it that triggered you i mean there are so many different things i mean i think um there are so many different geeky answers i could give to this really uh, i don't know if any of them are of interest <laughs> um i would say that um I, I mean gravity is so utterly fascinating if i sort of did my life again i might you know i might want to um spend more time in physics uh, uh rather than applied bits of physics and and really do some research i think it's just it is utterly fascinating and that's not that's not really kind of what we're talking about actually is what gravity is uh we're just talking about these sort of you know environmental effects and what they mean for you know the sort of basically the equations which govern the behavior of all these other things so that's mm -hmm. fascinating i've always been fascinated with vehicles with robotics with instrumentation and i think for a lot of people i mean you know we've got a fantastic group of engineers here and our kind of rapidly growing team and they all choose space engineering, I think, because um, it's it's the sharpest edge of everything, you know. So the demands of space, and also, you know, gravity on our planet is really quite, it's it's quite extreme. It's not it's not nothing, you know. It's not Jupiter, but but for for an inhabitable planet, it's really really quite it's really quite I would say probably quite high level. And no, we don't really have a fantastic way to benchmark this. But it's pretty much the limits of chemical propulsion to be able to escape Earth's, um, you know, Earth orbit and move on to another planet. So it's kind of at the level. If it was much higher, then we would have had to have developed, you know, um, some kind of um, nuclear or, you know, um, nuclear propulsion rather than chemical. So we're quite lucky we can just do it. It's really quite exciting. And so because of that, everything has to be so optimized, has to be so well designed, it, you know, um, and I think that's what draws engineers into this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, we sometimes, you know, go through life not really thinking about gravity, <laughs> unless you maybe watch The Big Bang Theory or something. Um, but it's nice. I, it, it's nice. It's fascinating um, to hear how how utterly inspired so many people are by its very existence. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I was I'd just say, I mean, it's again really geeky, silly comment, really. But when you start thinking about gravity, it kind of um, you go through a period where it sort of dominates, I think, your thoughts for quite a while. You realise that everything in your life is absolutely dominated by gravity. The way that, you you know, your your body grows, everything you do, every, the way everything works, the way that things happen to you, the things you see, everything is affected by by gravity. On You know, you're experiencing something on a day-to-day on -day basis, which is really quite a strange force of the universe. Absolutely. But, I mean, gravity itself has been a huge headache in many ways um, for scientists, really, since the, it's sort of, the consciousness of gravity began because you know we're still unable to unify 
a quantum friendly theory of gravity with, with classical physics. So again, if we were to go into a very nerdy interpretation of why microgravity is useful, it allows scientists to conduct fundamental tests, removing gravity that actually may then help us understand how to sort of marry those um, from the quantum mechanical side of things to the classical physics side of things, which has been inherently very awkward uh, for the last hundred years or so. Indeed, indeed it has. Um... And there was another, you've got another, um, did we talk about Louis? Uh, did we talk about the Cornwall drop with him? We spoke about Louis earlier, but we didn't mention the Cornwall drop. No, so that was one of the, um, so it's that kind of interesting. Term, from, yeah. The Cornwall drop. We're, we know what a drop is now. We're going to have a <laughs> zero gravity environment in that. <laughs> that's right. So that's a, that, that was the first time that we sort of dropped the drop pod. We call it the drop pod, but, uh, you know, that's the sort of Louis bit, the exciting bit. Um, so the, the ascent vehicle, which lifts uh, Louis, is an ordinary looking drone in a way it's a big one but you know it um so you know people who like drones would be excited about it but it, you know it's just a vehicle which lifts it and then the exciting bit is the louis bit, which gets dropped and then powers itself so um harking back to the challenges with the regulation and legislation and the C the caa you know regulating these new areas like space flight's a new area that the caa is regulating and there are lots of you know things to do with uavs which are relatively new that they're where they're finding ways to regulate as well um, so yes, they were pretty nervous about it. And so the, the initial requirement was that we do it somewhere exceedingly safe. So we went to um, a specific danger area, Cornwall, and somewhere called the Lizard Range down there, which is, um, it has uh, civil usages, but it was, um, I think originally, certainly a military site, and, and there are some still some military applications that go, that go on there. And it's somewhere that we're probably going to return to because it's one of the few places in the UK where you can do research and testing with beyond visual line of sight operations. Uh, and so our aspiration to provide longer durations, longer seconds, uh, more seconds of microgravity is to drop it from a higher altitude and a sufficiently high altitude that, that it is then literally out of your visual sight. Mm -hmm. So um, so although we didn't do that on these initial drops, that's where we had to go to do these first drops in a very, very safe place. Uh, and then moving on from that, we're then able to do it from um, from you know smaller bits of land and, and areas which are not specific danger areas. So there's a bit of a process to do that. So we'll be going back to Cornwall to do more of that, um, yeah, in the future. Sounds exciting. Um, and uh, so you know you've 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 created this new service now. Um, it's all unified. You've effectively unified a fragmented market for making things really accessible. And um, how are people going to nerve out your life? Poses the question. Like, how do they how do they know now? A that they that they need this type of support in the research that they're doing, and B that that they can go to you to get that. Well, I mean, that's definitely one of my core focuses is particularly engaging with the academic community um, just to raise the awareness and, and really tune people back into to doing microgravity research. Because I think, as, as Rob's already highlighted, you know, there's these legacy programs that potentially it's brilliant that they've existed, but it's potentially inhibited or stymied progress in, in certain research areas because there's this huge timeline where you may have to plan an experiment. It may or may not get accepted and then it may or may not work once it eventually reaches orbit. Um, so it's really about engaging with um, any researchers that wish to do an experiment in microgravity, whether that's uh, to do with materials manufacturing, 3D printing, um, a chemist, you know, um, a physical chemist or, or a bio biological scientist who, who's never actually, you know, used microgravity before. So for us, you know, we can engage on, on grants. 
um, so to help you know realize a new research project um, but also, as Rob said, you know, we want to develop these containers that allow someone to put a biological sample in or, or a certain type of uh, material or, or gas or liquid and, and conduct experiments that, that we will actually customise the, the payload containers to, to help them do, whether that be a, a thermal experiment or a quantum experiment or, um, you know, trying to 3D print a biocomposite using a new fibre and then test its mechanical properties. We could we can potentially create payload containers that help facilitate that. Well, that's, that's a really good question, though, Harriet. Sorry, I was just going to say that that that's kind of at the heart of it. You sort of you hit on something which um yeah you know keeps me awake at night, which is how we could communicate this because it is this fragmented market, and there are various ways of framing that. And I would say that um I, there was a time that I went to a conference that was about microgravity research, and it was a space conference, and it and it was part of the big institutional. Um, the world and I did a talk and I, and I talked about companies that we've been talking to and afterwards somebody said I, I just don't get it well, they're not space companies you, you're not talking about space companies why <laughs> you know what what's the relevance of this they just thought that that was an anathema and that was a strange thing which for me that's that's the whole point so, mm -hmm. you know these aren't space companies these are people who want to solve kind of everyday problems you know and also we don't care if it's not it doesn't have it's it sounds wonderful to talk about you know uh, new medicines for cancers and that's uh, probably the best one of the best things about yeah. it but you know we also spoke to a chocolate manufacturer who wants to understand better how bubbles are forming in their chocolate through mm. all kinds of uh there are all kinds of things it could be and i feel like our challenge with this as you say drawing together a sort of fragmented market it's possibly what people went through um i don't know in the 1980s when people were trying to understand the new world of earth observation now today if you're trying to sell an application or a product or raise funds for uh for that kind of uh for that kind of activity you don't have to explain to people the value of the fact that you know we're measuring you know um the change in you know um polar ice through earth observation we're taking climate change you know readings we're doing um all kinds of stuff with communications you know we're observing all kinds of things about the earth and we rely on that every day and your, and your phone is utilizing that data all the time um, you don't have to explain it now, but at one time, probably pe people would probably just thought you were crazy if you said, right, I'm going to put this spacecraft in orbit and I'm going to sell all this data to people who don't even know, you know, <laughs> don't know what a spacecraft is. Um, and so we're in a similar situation. We want to be able to tell people, you know, in all walks of life who don't know about us at all. And in my experience, researchers are very open minded about new methods and doing new things. Uh, and if researchers aren't very aren't creative, they're probably not going to get very far. They have to be extremely creative about you know uh, what they do with limited budgets, and about how they can get around things that they can't really physically test. How they can simulate things, how how they can model things, and so people are sort of getting around this now in an, in a way which isn't great. And if you could present them with this opportunity, I think you know they'll bite your hand off to be able to do it in that way and really get their research into that environment. We just need to be able to access platforms to be able to tell people, yeah, who aren't connected with this world at all about mm -hmm. this opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully this might help a little bit and a few people will hear this and think, gosh, yes, we'll get in touch with Gravity Lab. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, sorry. Carry on, carry on, you go. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of mechanisms that we're coming up with to help facilitate raising this awareness as well. Um, 
you know, we will be looking to develop uh, national calls for microgravity experiments um, to actually really sort of ring the bell for researchers to come to us with their ideas and we can work out ways that we can work, sort of work together with them to develop either our payload containers or help realise their, their experiments within a payload. Um, but another way um, that we're going to be doing this shortly is via a national student competition as well. So actually engaging researchers early in their careers, you know, as, as sort of postgraduates or undergraduates um, to sort of compete to to win time um, on our Louis um, drop pod as well. So it will help sort of just invigorate and, and sort of help encourage that sort of early awareness. Certainly. And, and where can people go to find out when that competition is launching? Please do keep an eye on our website because we'll we'll clearly have a sort of web page uh, with all the information on the the competition when it launches. Yeah, so hopefully that will be in the next month or so. But just watch this space. Watch this space, and it'll be gravitylab.space. That's right. Yeah, gravitylab.space, and then look out for the competition. That's yeah. I think you're right. I think um bringing bringing people's awareness levels up when they're young helps enormously. But um hopefully we can do that. Um, with everyone, because we're all really young in the great scheme of things, I hope. <laughs> well, look, it sounds so fascinating. I'm so pleased you've come and talked about it today. Um, thank you again for joining us. And um, hopefully we'll hear a lot more about you and the impact that you're having in the future. Great. Thanks so much, Harriet. Thank you. Thank you.